suffering, but because God was faithful. He gave them judges in order to guide them, in order to call them back in repentance when they had sinned. Call them back to faithfulness. Again, not because they deserved it, but because they needed it and because of his own heart. And now, now God has given them a king. They are in the land. A king, a man after his own heart, he calls him. More than that, he's given them rest from all of their surrounding enemies. God has proven himself to be faithful beyond anything that these people could have asked or imagined. And so it is no surprise then that David, in reflecting on all of God's faithfulness, has a very thoughtful conversation with Nathan, the prophet, his friend and advisor. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house, build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, I did, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that I, the Lord, will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, 
as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servants be blessed forever." The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. So it all breaks down pretty evenly or easily, maybe if not evenly, into David's idea, God's reply, and David's response. You can kind of picture David and Nathan, can't you? You know, maybe sitting on the rooftop one evening, uh, you know, an entire castle built of cedar, you know, the, just the aroma of it would be very pleasing. I mean, unless you had a hamster, then the aroma of cedar like brings like twitchy memories to you. Uh, but, uh, you know, just the cedar house uh, sitting up there, you know, sipping their warm cups of coffee, 
looking out over the city and realizing all that God has done. They are at rest. Israel is at peace, not peace because of treaties with their enemies, but peace because God has delivered them from their enemies. He has given them rest from their enemies. You know, as they sit and look out in the the golden hour of the setting sun on the beautiful city that God has given to them, David looks out and he can't help but notice the tent, the tabernacle, the place that the ark of God has been brought for corporate worship, for worship to be centralized in Jerusalem. This place representing the very presence of God with his people. And David just gets this sense, something's wrong, something's wrong with this picture. Like, I am in a castle, God is in a tent. I have fixed my house up, I have covered all the projects, every honeydew list is taken care of, and he had a lot of wives, so he had a lot of honeydew lists, but it is all covered and taken care of, and God is in a tent. And he just kind of muses about that, and Nathan, like Nathan knows two things, that David is king and that God is with him. Like this rest, this reprieve from the enemies isn't because of David's awesome uh, military prowess, although he was a great leader. It is because of God himself, because God was with him. And so Nathan responds appropriately. He says, this is logical. I hear, I think I hear, I'm picking up what you're laying down, David. Go for it. Do Do what's on your heart. God is with you. And so it's important that we not misunderstand God's response. God isn't rebuking David in any way. It is appropriate. David's desire to build a house for God is not inappropriate. That's not why God stops him. In fact, he says, your son will build a house for me. So it's not a no, David. It's a not now, David, not you. David. And so God's reply, his his response in verses 4 to 17, they come in in sort of two phases. The first is expected. It's an answer to David's desire. Is he going to build a house or not? The second is totally unexpected. It is not what God wants from David. It's what God is about to do for David. Not only does God not need David to build a house for him, God intends to build a house for David. And so the first response comes in verses 4 to 7 here. Do you notice the the humility of God? And we read in Philippians 2 about uh, the humility of Jesus Christ, but we know that the Son of God only is ever He always represented the Father perfectly. I mean, he was always fully God. And there's a humility of God just in his willingness, in his condescension to even receive our worship. 
You know, our worship of God doesn't add to His glory. In many ways, sometimes our worship of God masks His glory, doesn't it? In the ways that we approach worship. But here it's all positive, but there's this, this reminder of God's condescension, His humility, His desire to be with His people. A desire that is so great that He has never once yet asked for a permanent dwelling place. He says, I have not lived in a house from the day I brought the people out of Egypt to this day. Throughout all the people's wanderings from Egypt through the Red Sea to the base of Mount Sinai, to the edge of the promised land, back into the wilderness for 40 years, back to the promised land, through the conquest of the promised land. Through all that time, what were the people of God living in? What were their Homes. You can answer. Tents. Yeah. They were living in tents. God is so intent, pardon the pun, in in being identified with his people that when his people live in tents, he lives in a tent. He's not looking, I mean, his tent is amazing as it ought to be. When the creator of the universe comes and says, hey, can I have a tent? I mean, you make him an amazing tent, and it was an amazing tent. But it was a tent. It was a temporary structure. And it was on purpose because when his people moved, he moved. When, they, when he wanted them to go somewhere, it was, it was this sign and reminder, I am with you. The tabernacle would go before them. I am going before you. The tabernacle would be set up first. The first tent set up was the tabernacle. And then their tents would be set up. He says, because I am here with you. I am for you. I will lead you. I will always be with you. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, so identifies with his people that he chooses to dwell with them in a tent. When my daughters were younger, uh, they used to uh, come to Amy at night and say, can we do your makeup and hair? And I always loved that process because she always said yes. She always said yes. Yes, you can do my makeup and hair. And they were so delighted and they were so sincere and they took such pains and efforts and they were, and they just, they'd sit back and they would put makeup on and maybe a little pink over here and a little purple over here and a little blue down here. And, you know, if, if one barrette is pretty and two is gorgeous, then 12 is over the top and she would have 12 barrettes coming out of her hair and they would sit back and it's so funny to think, to hear from them now about this because they remember how beautiful they thought they had made their mommy. And I just, the, the humility to receive that, to receive that and say yes, because all of us know that all of that completely detracted from the beauty of their mommy. And yet there was a deeper beauty going involved in, in the condescension, in the, 
the inviting of them to do these things. This is the God we serve. That when we come to worship him, we're not, like, we're bringing, we're bringing makeup and a dozen barrettes. And he says, yes. Yeah, come and worship me. And he's, it's just a reminder to David, like, I don't need that, David. It's not a correction or a rebuke. Well, it's a correction, but it's not a rebuke. It's just a reminder. I love being with my people. And if they're going to be in tents, I'm going to be in a tent. It's my delight because I have made them my people. I've made them my people so I can dwell with them. Why would I need a castle if they're still in tents? God had intentionally, humbly chosen a tent to dwell in because that's where his people dwelt. It helps us grasp or at least explodes with deeper meaning, John 1.14, does it not? The word became flesh and dwelt, literally pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. God condescends, puts on flesh because he, how important it is for him to be with us, to have us as his people. The passage we read in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, not just humbled himself to become a man, not just humbled himself to be born as a man, but humbled himself even to death, even to death on a cross. God did not need a house built by David. It's interesting, if you read some of the ancient Near East history, and I have slept through that enough so that you don't have to, uh, that's how much I love you, uh, what, if you desire to read some of those, you see uh, in surrounding nations this sort of almost a quid pro quo pro quo movement of the kings with their gods of their lands. So there would be this great battle, and they would be victorious. And so the king, in recognition that his god had done this for him, would then build a beautiful temple for his god... And in return, God would continue or increase or add to those initial blessings. So God would deliver from enemies. The king would build a temple to God in thanks, but also in, now, look what I've done. Let's keep this going for a while. It was this sort of, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back so that you can scratch my back type setting. It's not an abnormal thing to see there in the history. And so it's not even abnormal for David to sort of see, look what God has done. He has provided us rest. And so in gratitude, that's a rightful place to begin, in gratitude and in honor of our God who has done this, I will build him a temple. I will build him a house. It's not that it's inappropriate. It's that it goes against the grace of God. It doesn't 
feed the narrative that God has been saying, it is not what you do for me. It's what I do for you. In fact, here's what we're going to do with this normal setting. I deliver you from enemies. You build me a house. Then I'll give you more blessings. I tell you what, this is what we'll do, David. I'm going to deliver you from enemies. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to increase your blessings forever. This is the grace of God and how he always interacts with his people. It always by grace. It's always out of his compassion. It's always because of his commitment to you and not your commitment to him. It's not that David was necessarily thinking along those lines and so God had to correct him. I don't think David was thinking, I'm going to secure some more blessings by building God a house. I think he really did have very, in this particular moment, he had very pure motives. But do you and I? If it had gone the way the rest of the world goes, deliverance, payback, blessings... Wouldn't you and I just assume, well, yeah, that's how God works. Yes, he's been good. Now I have to be really good. And hopefully he'll continue to be good. We assume God interacts with us based on, are we being grateful enough? Have I been good enough? Have I done everything I'm supposed to? And if you doubt if you say, well, Leonard, I don't know if I do. I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I, 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 get, I grasp God's grace. Let me ask you, when something goes wrong, is one of your first thoughts, oh, it's because I've not been praying. Oh, it's because I'm not over that sin. Oh, uh, yeah, well. This was a long time coming. I mean, I knew it was coming, but I mean, this is because when I was in sixth grade, now most of us don't have to go all the way back to sixth grade. Most of us can just say yesterday at noon. But don't we do that? Things are hard. Things are difficult. Things aren't going according to the blessings of, of what scripture says. My life and God's promises, they don't seem to match. And so our first thought is, oh, it's because of my sin. God is angry. Listen, there's never a wrong time to repent, so don't hear what I'm not saying. By all means, if, if, you are, if you are hanging on to sin, if there are trials that you are facing that are constantly dragging you back into repeated sin, by all means, yes, repent. But know that, that God is faithful to forgive. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So he's faithful because he's said he will forgive us. He's just because as Christians, as followers of Jesus, Christ has already been punished for your sin. So when we confess our sin, it's out of justice that God forgives you because Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, we're told he intercedes for us. How does Christ intercede for us? But perhaps by showing his wounds, by reminding the Father of what the Father needs, no reminding, because it was His plan all along. But here, the Father and the Son, together remembering that your sins have been paid for. It's not Jesus on the cross and traffic on 95 that are going to pay for your sins. 
It's not Jesus on the cross and a hard day at work, at home, whatever, that are going to pay for your sins. Jesus on the cross pays for your sins. Life is hard because the world is still broken. Life is hard because you're still a sinner. But those hard things aren't because God is eking out of you some more payment for your sin. He has been satisfied. Jesus did not lie when he said, it's finished on the cross. I think that's part of why this is so important in 1 Samuel to see. It is God's blessings, followed by God's blessings, followed by God's blessings. God has delivered them from their enemies. God will build a house for David. God will establish that house forever. It is, as we just sang today, it is grace upon grace upon grace. God rehearses the past when he moves on from just, no, I'm not going to receive a house from you, David. Now sit down, and I've got something else to tell you. First, he rehearses the past in verses 8 to 16. I took you from a shepherd of the sheep to be the prince over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies. Not only does he rehearse the past, he looks to the future. David's personal future, I will make for you a great name. Because that is one of the reasons you would put so much effort into building a place of worship for God, to make his name great. God says, you know what, David, I'm going to make your name great. But it's not just David. It's not just for David's sake, but it's for the sake of God's people. Because I will appoint a place for my people. I will plant them. They will dwell in their own place. They will not be disturbed anymore. Violent men will not afflict them anymore. And listen to the assurity of this promise. God's promise to David... In verses 12 and 13, death will not end this promise. I was just joking with Amy the other day about how, you know, I made a vow to her, but, you know, till death do us part is the end of that vow. Like, I mean, uh, I'm out at that point, right? Uh, Now, some guys are like, yes. And some women are like, yeah, yeah, you say you'll die for me, but you never have. Uh, But that's another... Uh, sermon altogether. But God says to David, death is not going to end this promise. I will raise up your offspring, literally your seed, who will come from your own body. Even after you are laid to rest, David, this promise will not end. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Death will not affect this promise, David. Verses 14 and 15. Sin will not corrupt this promise. I will be to him as a father. He will be to me as a son. When he sins, I will discipline him with the rods of men and the stripes of men. But my steadfast love, my Chesed, my covenantal faithfulness, 
will never depart from him. Sin will not corrupt this promise. And time will not fade this promise. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever. Your throne will be established forever. So much of God's promises is is pointing, yes, to David's immediate son, Solomon, who would build the temple. But also, isn't it pointing to something larger than that? A throne that would last forever? I hate to break it to you, but Solomon died. And Solomon's son died. And his son died. And his son died. But there would come a son who, though he died yet would live, would be raised to life. He would establish the throne forever. And yes, the the warning to David, listen, when your sons or grandsons sin, I will discipline them, but the covenant will not end. The promise will not end. I will discipline them with the rods of men and with the stripes of of men, and then would come a son who would not sin and yet would be disciplined for our sin with the rods and stripes of men. Literally, that passage, by his stripes, we are healed. This is why I say it is not possible to overemphasize the importance of this chapter in our understanding of God's plan of salvation. God is promising that through the one man, David, that one dynasty will come a savior, a king who will rule forever on his throne. And if it's not possible to overemphasize it, it is possible to try to preach more than you ought to in one Sunday. And so next Sunday, we will look at David's response because it is worthwhile to slow down and just consider and meditate on just how overwhelming God's grace is because there are times when we worship God like David and we can't sit still. We've got to dance. If we had ephods, we would all put them on and dance around because we're so amazed at the grace and goodness and kindness and love of our God. But there are times when we see a picture of that, God's kindness, God's faithfulness, and we just have to go in and sit down before God And just say, what? What? So that's next week. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are faithful. You have called us to be your people. 
You have made us your people by your work through your son, not by our work. The work you have called us to is faith, to trust you, to receive your promises, to understand that, yes, discipline comes, but in the morning there is rejoicing. We praise you, God, for your faithfulness and pray that we would be a people who would trust you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.